Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Thursday, January 12th, 2023. Uh, we'll start with a couple of anniversaries. Uh, roughly speaking, on January 11th in the year 630, this was the day, and I say roughly speaking, we could be off on the year, we could be off on the day, uh, anything is possible. Uh, but when you go back this far and you're dealing with another, a different calendar, which uh, you are in this case, but this is uh, probably the day, the most likely day, I would say, uh, for the conquest of Mecca by Muhammad and his followers. Uh, I say conquest, it was a bloodless thing. The Meccans who had been fighting a war against Muhammad for some time were spent. Uh, Muhammad had amassed a fairly sizable army for that time and place, uh, and the Meccans at that point were so bedraggled that they basically just let the army into the city, uh, and they were able to take control. Now, they agreed uh, to uh, leave. They, Muhammad went back to Medina, which was his capital. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, returned to Mecca in 632 for the Hajj, uh, which was his only Hajj, actually. Uh, and he died shortly after that. It was it's called his farewell pilgrimage. Uh, so fairly major event, uh, you know, marking the end of the war with Mecca and the beginnings uh, of something much bigger. Uh, as I say, the, a little bit of uncertainty about the date, but uh, we'll go with it. Uh, on January 11th in the year 1942, there were bat in battles at Kuala Lumpur and Tarakan, the Imperial Japanese military won major victories over Britain and the Netherlands, respectively. Tarakan was the more significant victory. The Japanese military was able to seize control over an oil drilling and refinery operation, as well as a major regional airfield. Uh, Kuala Lumpur, the victory of Kuala Lumpur, helped expand Japan's control over Southeast Asia, but the city, uh, you know, you might think of it as a very large kind of cosmopolitan place, con conquering it is uh, a big deal. Kuala Lumpur was not nearly as large or important back then as it is today, uh, so it was not as, as big a victory as it might sound. On January 12, 1945, the Soviet Red Army began the Vistula Oder Offensive, uh, which is a massive push into Poland, or was a massive push into Poland, uh, involving over 2.2 million soldiers. Uh, that operation ended on February 2nd with the defeat of an entire German army group, Group A, uh, the successful conquest of most of Poland, uh, and the liberation of a number of Nazi concentration camps, including Auschwitz. Uh, at one point, Soviet forces advanced close to Berlin, uh, uh, with seemingly little or no remaining German defenses between them and the city. Uh, but uh, Georgi Zhukov opted to stop their advance uh, and shore up his flanks against a potential German attack. Uh, this bought the Germans a little bit more time to... Um, I, I wrote here in the newsletter to put their affairs in order, which is a reference, of course, to Hitler's suicide. Uh, but you know that—that's basically, uh, you know, it—it it, it gave the Germans a little more time to kind of sort things out. Uh, but it was clear at that point that the the Red Army was on the march, and and there was nothing the Germans could do to stop them. Uh, on January 12, 1970, Operation Tailwind ended with the surrender of the Separatist Biafran Army, which brought the 1967 to 1970 Nigerian Civil War, or the Biafran War, if you like, to a close. Rebel leader Odumegwu Ojukwa, Ojukwu sorry, uh, fled into exile on January 9th. So this was somewhat anticlimactic. Uh, he had already uh, given up the fight. The remaining leaders of the uh, would-be country of Biafra surrendered to Nigerian authorities uh, on January 15th.
Uh, On to the news in the Middle East. In Yemen, Houthi officials held a funeral for eight of their fighters who were recently killed in battle with government forces. It is unclear uh, when or where they were killed. Uh, but given that Yemen's ceasefire uh, expired in October, any sign of new clashes uh, between the uh, the government and the rebels uh, has to raise fears of a return to full-scale war. In Turkey, Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu suggested on Thursday that he may meet with Syrian Foreign Minister Faisal Mekdad sometime early next month. Uh, this kind of contradicts the senior Turkish official we mentioned in yesterday's newsletter was quoted as speculating that they could have a meeting as soon as next week. But it does indicate that a foreign minister's meeting between the two countries uh, is likely to happen relatively soon. Uh, the Russian government has, of course, been trying to broker a reopening of relations between Turkey and Syria as a way to help stabilize the Assad government and maybe lessen Russia's military role in Syria. Obviously, they have other fish to fry right now. Uh, In Israel-Palestine, Israeli occupation forces killed three Palestinians on Thursday in two arrest raids in the West Bank. They killed one person in an operation in the Kalandia refugee camp, which is located near Ramallah, uh, and two people during a raid in a town outside of Jenin. In both cases, as always, the Israelis are insisting that they acted in self-defense. Last year was the deadliest on record for Palestinians in the West Bank, and while it is still early and I don't have any cumulative statistics in front of me, it seems like 2023 is already shaping up to be even deadlier. Elsewhere, Israeli Supreme Court Chief Justice Esther Hayut took the rare step of wading into politics on Thursday to denounce an effort by Benjamin Netanyahu's government to strip the court of much of its authority. As we talked about earlier this week, Netanyahu and his far-right partners view the court as an obstacle when it comes to things like essay annexing large swaths of the West Bank, and they've moved quickly to advance measures that would give politicians more control over the judicial appointment process and give the Knesset the ability to overrule court rulings or override them. Uh, Israeli Justice Minister Yariv Levin, uh, who's uh, perhaps the uh, driving force behind uh, this effort, countered Hayut's uh, criticism by arguing that the measures would protect the balance of power in the face of what he called judicial overreach. Uh, I'm not sure how he made that claim with a straight face, giving the legislature the ability to overrule the courts seems to basically strip the courts of any power. I don't know how you could talk about a balance at that point, but I digress. Uh, In the United Arab Emirates, uh, the United Nations COP28 climate summit won't officially open in Dubai until later this autumn, but it's already off to a great start with the appointment of Sultan al-Jaber, uh, as summit president. Al Jaber's day job is CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. So he's certainly well positioned to understand the climate crisis in that he and his firm have had a fairly significant hand in helping to perpetuate it. Uh, he's promised to emphasize what he's calling a pragmatic approach to climate change at the summit, which I I would say is probably code for, uh, we're definitely going to phase out oil, don't worry about it, Uh, definitely that's going to happen, just not anytime soon. Uh, We'll get to it eventually. 
In Asia, in Armenia, relations between collective security treaty organization allies Russia and Armenia may have taken another turn for the worse on Thursday when Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova accused the Armenian government of abandoning peace talks with the Azerbaijani government. Armenian officials have been increasingly critical of Moscow. We covered this earlier earlier this week, uh, which is the guarantor for the ceasefire that ended the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war and is supposed to be brokering a broader peace agreement between Yerevan and Baku. Most recently, uh, earlier this week, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan suggested that not only are Russian peacekeepers in the region not keeping the peace, they're actually a threat to Armenian security. Uh, all this public sniping would seem to indicate that the relationship is indeed getting rockier. Uh, in South Korea, there's wonderful news. I'm, I'm quoting the New York Times here. Uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea said for the first time on Wednesday that if North Korea's nuclear threat grows, South Korea would consider building nuclear weapons of its own or ask the United States to redeploy them on the Korean peninsula. Speaking during a joint policy briefing by his defense and foreign ministries on Wednesday, Mr. Yoon was quick to add that the building nuclear weapons was not yet an official policy. He stressed that South Korea would for now deal with North Korea's nuclear threat by strengthening strengthening its alliance with the United States. Uh, one hopes that if Yoon ever broaches either of these ideas with the U.S., uh, whatever administration is in office at the time will sort of pat him on the head and send him on his way with a polite decline. Uh, not only would uh, moving nukes back to Korea, back to the Korean Peninsula or uh, greenlighting a South Korean nuclear weapons program provoke a response from North Korea, I'm expecting North Korea to respond to just what Yoon has said, let alone if they were actually to take this step. Uh, it would have a number of uh, undesirable knock-on effects in terms of nuclear nonproliferation, uh, future arms control talks between the U.S. and either or both of Russia and China. Uh, I do realize that there is a strong incentive that's created largely by U.S. behavior over the past quarter century, although the Russian invasion of Ukraine isn't helping either, for countries to acquire their own nuclear arsenals. But that does not mean that I think it's desirable, and particularly not in this case. Uh, in Oceania, in Australia, the Australian and Papua New Guinean governments are reportedly close to signing a new mutual security pact that would presumably have repercussions for our glorious new Cold War. Uh, nothing is set in stone yet, but Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, seems to think the treaty should be concluded by mid-year. Uh, it would likely focus more on areas that could broadly be considered law enforcement rather than military, but much like the security deal China reached with the Solomon Islands last year, the pact would bring Papua New Guinea more tightly into the uh, Australian or really U.S. Uh, sphere of influence. In Africa, and in uh, specifically Libya, the Biden administration dispatched CIA Director William Burns to Libya on Thursday for meetings with a number of senior officials affiliated with both of that country's governments. Uh, Burns spoke with Prime Minister Abdelhamid Dibeba, uh, the leader of the Western-based government, and he was expected to meet with Libyan National Army boss Khalifa Haftar, who is the de facto head of the Eastern-based government. Uh, the administration frequently dispatches Burns in a sort of quasi-diplomatic role when it would like a little less transparency than it would be able to get by sending, for example, Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Uh, in this case, it's believed Burns may have been after information on the Russian uh, Wagner Group uh, private military firm's activities in Libya. 
He may also have been sent to deliver a sort of knock-it-off message to Libyan politicians whose failure to organize or even make any significant progress toward organizing new elections to end their impasse is generating increasing frustration among Libyans and with Western diplomats, especially as it uh, was reported on Thursday that they're apparently giving themselves pay raises while the Libyan <laughs> state uh, falls apart around them, essentially. Uh, the two governments did reach an accord earlier this month to craft a constitutional base for holding elections, which sounds to me like they agreed to agree on finding an agreement on how to create the framework for an agreement. Uh, suffice to say, Libya is years past the point where something like that should be viewed as meaningful progress. It is uh, just rhetoric. Uh, in Burkina Faso, unspecified militants attacked a mosque in the Sahel region in northern Burkina Faso on Wednesday evening, killing at least nine people. Uh, the village where the incident took place, uh, Gulgontu, I'm sorry, I'm mangling that, uh, but is located relatively close to the Nigerian border. Uh, that detail combined with the choice of targets suggests that Islamic state fighters were responsible for the attack. In Benin, the main Beninese opposition party, the Democrats, announced on Thursday that it is rejecting the preliminary results of Sunday's parliamentary election. The party is alleging fraud, everything from stuffing ballot boxes to buying votes to just making up results, in an outcome that saw two parties with close ties to President Patrice Talon uh, finish as the two largest in the National Assembly with the Democrats in third place. It's unclear whether or how the Democrats intend to press their case. Any legal challenge to the outcome would wind up with Benin's constitutional court, which Talon and his allied parties control, and which has already confirmed Wednesday's vote count. So it would seem to be an uphill battle. Uh, in Ethiopia, special forces personnel from Ethiopia's Amhara region have reportedly left the Tigrayan city of Shira. Uh, this is another sign that the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front are finally making substantive progress on implementing the peace deal they signed in November. Uh, as re reported earlier this week, the TPLF has been surrendering. Uh, has begun surrendering its heavy weaponry to federal authorities in Tigray. Uh, it's likely that these two things are linked because the Tigrayans have been stalling on disarmament, arguing that they couldn't give up their weapons until third-party forces like, for example, the Eritrean military uh, or the Amharans, uh, as long as they were still in the Tigray region. Uh, work is continuing on other parts of the deal, like expanding humanitarian relief, uh, restoring electricity and other basic services to the most remote parts of Tigray. Uh, there's been some progress there, but more work needs to be done, apparently. Uh, in Europe, uh, starting in Russia, where there appears to be a good deal of speculation circulating in Western media outlets that the real reason Vladimir Putin named Russian military chief of staff Valery Gerasimov as his new commander in Ukraine, something we mentioned in yesterday's newsletter, was actually more political than military. The story goes that the previous Russian commander in Ukraine, who's been demoted to sort of a deputy position, Sergei Surovikin, was viewed as too close to Wagner Group owner Yevgeny Prigozhin whose ownership of the Russian campaign around Bakhmut, uh, we'll say more about that in a minute, may be rubbing some folks in the Kremlin the wrong way. I am extraordinarily hesitant to place too much stock in whatever the latest bit of Kremlin Kremlinology uh, is that's emanating from Western media, but I felt I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention it. Uh, I would say whatever the politics uh, of this situation, uh, one assumes that 
the state of the conflict must have been at least part of Putin's thinking uh, when he changed commanders. It would be uh, hard to imagine that if, for example, he felt Surovikin was doing a good job, that he would have changed commanders anyway just because of this uh, political alignment. Uh, in Ukraine, speaking of which, while Prigozhin has claimed uh, that his Wagner Group uh, fighters are in control uh, of the Ukrainian town of Solidar, uh, it seems that in Ukraine, uh, speaking of which, while Prigozhin has claimed that his Wagner Group fighters are in control of the town of Solidar uh, in Ukraine's Donetsk Oblast, the Ukrainian government is continuing to insist that its soldiers are still battling it out in that town. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said so in his regular video address on Thursday. There are reports that more than 550 civilians are still trapped in Solidar, so that may be why the Ukrainians uh, are remaining and continuing to fight. Uh, the Russian government has yet to confirm Prigozhin's declaration of victory, and there are other sources on the Russian side who have said uh, there's still some fighting going on in the town. Uh, also, contrary to a report that I mentioned yesterday, uh, emerged on Wednesday, uh, it seems the Ukrainians and Russians have not come to any agreement on the contours of another prisoner swap. Uh, Russian Human Rights Commissioner Tatyana Moskalkova, who was the source for Wednesday's story that they had come come to an agreement, uh, says that media misinterpreted her comments. She met with a Ukrainian official in Ankara in Turkey on Wednesday, and they apparently exchanged names of POWs who could potentially be released uh, as part of another swap. But neither of them was actually authorized to agree to anything uh, concrete. So uh, I guess um, maybe she said something that, that was interpreted as uh, saying it was a done deal, but but she's not really authorized to, to do any deals. Uh, so it's still up to kind of Russian and Ukrainian uh, senior officials to, to put the finishing touches on this. Uh, in Sweden, the Turkish government summoned the Swedish ambassador in Ankara on Thursday to lodge a complaint over a protest in Stockholm earlier this week in which members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, apparently hung an effigy of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan by its feet, uh, feet in quotes, it doesn't really have feet, it's not a thing, uh, outside City Hall. Uh, their expectation is apparently that Swedish authorities will arrest those responsible for the demonstrations, though it's unclear whether anything they did was actually actually against Swedish law. Needless to say, this is going to be another bump in the road with respect to Turkey approving Sweden's application to join NATO, as is a newly reported decision by the Swedish government to refuse the extradition of four people who were wanted by Turkish authorities over alleged ties to the outlawed Fethullah Gülen organization. Um, you know, these are these are going to be sticking points here if, if uh, uh, Turkey is to finally approve Sweden's uh, application. Uh, elsewhere, uh, on a completely different note, the Swedish uh, a Swedish mining firm uh, LKAB or LKAB, I don't know how you whether you, it's an acronym or what. Uh, has reportedly discovered a sizable deposit of rare earth minerals in northern Sweden's Lapland region. Uh, it's estimating that the deposit contains more than 1 million tons of unspecified rare earth oxides. Rare earths are, of course, essential in all kinds of high-tech industrial products and applications, and European firms have, until now, been mostly dependent on China for supplying them. This deposit could change that. Uh, although the site is obviously years away from, from actually producing anything, uh, having only just been discovered. 
Uh, in the Americas, uh, in Peru, unrest in southern Peru has forced the closure of the airport in Cusco, uh, while the Peruvian mining firm Minsur says that it has suspended operations at its San Rafael tin mine in solidarity with the protesters who were killed earlier this week in encounters with security forces in southern Peru's Puno region. Uh, the violence uh, that's been shown by these security forces may be reinforcing the same feelings that have animated these demonstrations. And I'll, I'll read you just a couple of paragraphs from the Washington Post. The protesters are demanding interim President Dina Boluarte's resignation, but analysts say the visceral discontent with the government here is rooted in decades of racism and marginalization by decision makers in Lima who have long ignored the people of the Andes and the Amazon, people who believe that in Castillo, Pedro Castillo, uh, the former president, they had finally found a president who would stand up for them. Uh, this shows, quote, this shows that deaths in the provinces are not worth the same as those in Lima, end quote, said Rolando Rojas, a historian at the Institute of Peruvian Studies. Puno is Peru's poorest and most indigenous region, he noted, and quote, racism runs through everything. The people of Puno have not been recognized as citizens or interlocutors. The, the response to their protests has been purely repressive, end quote. In Colombia, Human Rights Watch is reporting that at least 10 people were killed in clashes earlier this week between National Liberation Army or ELN rebels and former Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC fighters in Colombia's Arauca Department near the Venezuelan border. Both, both groups operate on either side of that border, and these sorts of encounters are not uncommon. Uh, the Colombian government's ombudsman's office has acknowledged the fighting but has not confirmed the number of casualties. The Colombian government announced a ceasefire with ELN earlier this month, interestingly enough, but had to take it back after ELN denied having agreed to it. Uh, they are still planning to uh, negotiate, but apparently ELN was not ready to, uh, to accept a ceasefire just yet. Uh, in El Salvador, the Salvadoran Congress has once again extended that country's state of emergency for a month, this time to February 15th. Uh, the emergency declaration was first imposed back in March, ostensibly over gang violence. Said violence has declined somewhat since then, but there are questions as to whether that can be attributed to the state of emergency. And there have been multiple allegations of human rights violations by Salvadoran security forces. Uh, and finally, in the United States, you will no doubt be stunned to learn, as I was, courtesy of a recently published study, that scientists at one U.S. oil company knew about climate change as far back as the 1970s, but that said company has spent the past few decades lying about the subject anyway. This is from the New York Times. Uh, in the late 1970s, scientists at Exxon fitted one of the company's supertankers with state-of-the-art equipment to measure carbon dioxide in the ocean and in the air, an early example of substantial research the oil giant conducted into the science of climate change. A new study published Thursday in the journal Science found that over the next decades, Exxon scientists made remarkably accurate projections of just how much burning fossil fuels would warm the planet. Their projections were as accurate and sometimes even more so as those of independent academic and government models. Yet, for years, the oil giant publicly cast doubt on climate science and cautioned against any drastic move away from burning fossil fuels, the main driver of climate change. Exxon also ran a public relations program, including ads that ran in the New York Times, emphasizing uncertainties in the scientific research on global warming. There's probably a lesson to be learned here, but uh, we probably shouldn't trouble our beautiful minds trying to figure out what it is. On that note, uh, that's all for us tonight. Uh, as always, thank you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and thanks to all of you who are subscribed. Uh, 
if you are, uh, especially those of you who are paid subscribers, and if you haven't made that jump uh, yet, please consider it. Uh, I hope you saw the uh, the piece we ran earlier today uh, from The Intercept Brazil. It was a translation. Uh, we're trying something a little bit new uh, here at the newsletter. If you haven't, please check that out. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, that depends on the support of FX subscribers uh, for me to be able to do. So if you appreciate that and, and you're still on the fence, uh, please do consider uh, subscribing. Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.